Welcome to the 16th instalment of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss the post-punk slash new wave movement of the late 70s and early 80s. If you'd like to hear the songs featured in this podcast, just click on the link, which will take you to a playlist especially curated by us for this episode. And I guess it's my duty now, for the future, to introduce today's band. Forty years ago, the world was witness to an album of aberrant, quirky tunes with unusual time signatures and eccentric lyrics created by a ragtag bunch of art school students who call themselves Devo. From the rubber capital of the world, Akron, Ohio, these spud boys in ziggurat hats carved out a career in popular music by making the most uncompromising, angular, robotic tunes that really had disaster written all over them. But their rise to prominence coincided with the new wave movement, where to be unusual was the cool thing to be. But these guys were through being cool. They had a bigger message and larger worlds to conquer. Devo have carved out an extensive career over the decades, releasing critically acclaimed albums, hit singles, composing movie soundtracks, scoring children's shows, performing reunion tours, and participating in some very interesting collaborations with other contemporary artists. And now, 40 years later, as I hear the sayer of the law on the island of Dr. Moreau chanting, Are we not men? Are we not men? I hear the answer coming through loud and clear. We are Devo. We are Devo. Okay, Patrick, take us to Akron, Ohio. Well, certainly Akron, Ohio was the place to be in the late 60s and early 70s. Well, it was. A lot of musicians came from there. And mm. a lot of rubber was produced. A lot of rubber, yep. So if that was your thing, <laughs> that was the place to be. I was a fan of both rubber and musicians at the time. <laughs> Chrissy Hines. Yes, Chrissy Hines. Yep. Speaking of rubber and musicians, <laughs> um, the waitresses. I know what boys like. And the waitresses also <laughs> came from there. So I just threw that in there, bit of a non sequitur. So, yes, you mentioned the rubber capital of the world, which Akron certainly was. 80% of America's tyres, car tyres, were produced in Akron. So Goodyear, Firestone, Goodrich, Firerich, Goodstone. All of <laughs> the, big, all the big five of tyre manufacturing are all based there. <laughs> yeah. let's, let's say that it probably wasn't the most exciting place to grow up, though, despite possibly that. Not. Possibly not. No. No, that's right. And, An industrial town. And from there came the Mothersbore brothers and the Casale brothers. It is Mothersbore, is it? Mothersbore. Yeah. Hmm. I couldn't decide whether between Bow and Bore. For years I've been calling him Mark Mothersbore. But, uh-huh. but I heard him say bore as okay, well. Yeah. So I, I will defer to In his In the absence of, of any other evidence, we may as well pronounce it the way he pronounces it. Yes. I think he's wrong. But anyway. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, certainly, the Devo story, I guess, starts the 4th of May 1970, I think, as being mm. the kind of key moment, which was the Kent State University protest against the Vietnam War that went horribly wrong mm. when the National Guard opened fire on students and four students were killed, a couple of whom were friends of Jerry yeah, of Jerry right. and Mark was at the same protest and for that matter Chrissy Hind was at the protest so it was a really defining moment for you know, future musicians from Ohio mm. yeah so they evolved from uh, hippies into angry young men I think more or less on that day that's how well the way they describe it is it sort of suggested that 60s were over that day mm. and they'd previously been hippies and there was only Two options, either become more of a hippie or become some sort of weird art abstract protest mm. guy, which is what they seem to uh, head towards. And they were they were quite optimistic about the future, which is the kind of, what you might say, broadly the kind of hippie mentality. Mm. But from that moment on, they saw 
civilization, or they could conceptualize civilization as beginning to de-evolve, to kind of head back gradually towards the primordial swamp from which it had emerged, and that's where the de-evolution philosophy began, more or less, partly serious and partly comic. So they started playing in bands. Was the uh, like the philosophy was there back then, but was the the actual shortened name? There's conflicting information. You can find all sorts of wrong dates for when Devo were formed because they weren't formed in 1972 and 1973 and 1974. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe but, they kept reforming. <laughs> that's right. But around about that time, right. you know, I guess that's when Devo and the, the formalisation of the de-evolution theory came to mind. But prior to that, Mark Mothersbaugh had briefly been in a band with Chrissy Hind. Oh, really? Um, which played one gig in a church hall and with Chrissy on lead vocals and they were called Sat Sun Mat, which is an abbreviation of Saturday Sunday Matinee, oh, okay. funnily enough. And apparently they were a really good band and Chrissy was terrible. She was so shy, so she says. She had to rehearse in the laundry <laughs> <laughs> with the door closed behind her. So Devo began with the... Mothersbaugh brothers, the Casale brothers. In fact, there were three Mothersbaugh brothers. I think Jim Mothersbaugh was on drums. He started on drums, didn't he? And then they started recording these crazy demos, which made their way eventually onto the hardcore Devo album released in about 1990. Two two albums. Yeah, yeah, which are the most incredible demos. Yeah, four-track home demos. They are... I mean, they've obviously been remastered subsequently, but there's certainly um, the ideas are all there. The songs are all there. The production is all there. <laughs> Better than any home demos that I've ever heard, I think. <laughs> um, song, You know, the songs like The Satisfaction and uh, Mongoloid are on there, and if you if you have a listen to them, it's pretty much the versions that we know. Well, Mark Motherball was a, um, a bit of a tech nerd at the time. Yeah, yeah. So he had, like, reel-to-reel machines, mixing desks. He had a lot of equipment. Like really early on. Yeah. So yeah. I guess when it came to recording demos, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I just imagined them to sound like most bands' demos when they start out, but they're releasable and obviously very good. But they had a lot of time to rehearse because they're pretty much ostracized by everybody else that they knew who hated what they were doing, mm. according to them. So mm. they just, instead of going out and getting laid and having fun, they were rehearsing and writing songs all the time for years and years. They said they suffered their fair share of rejection from the women of Akron who were only interested in football players and people who worked in banks. <laughs> well, it's hard to tell the difference between those two. You've got to remember it's a small town too. I think the population was about 270,000 mm. or something, so it's only a small place. So they would have suffered from that small town mentality that that often produces interesting art and interesting bands because people feel completely alienated from their surroundings and the other people, so they forge their own identity. Mm. Devo certainly did that. But they were fairly close in Akron to the town of Kent, which obviously had a university, and Cleveland was just up the road as well, and that was a fairly major city. So it was an interesting place in that regard, but it was slightly in decline in the 70s because... I blame Michelin. Really? Uh, yeah, because they introduced radial tyres in 1968, <laughs> which... Uh, you know, Cut which, the demand for rubber? Mm. But surely the condom boom of the 80s would have bought the, the, the town. The town had, to some extent, been in decline since the demise of the airship industry in the 1930s. Ah, the Hindenburg. So, it's, it all goes back to the Hindenburg, doesn't mm, it? A lot of right. the time. Yeah, yeah, a mm. lot. Of, I mean, pretty much every historical thread, pretty much every podcast we've done so far that's right. has Hindenburg. <laughs> Written all over it. Oh, the humanity. It ends like the Hindenburg a lot of it. <laughs> So 
what's the next step? I mean, it's interesting that it seems as if they spent a couple of years just writing songs, rehearsing, doing gigs whenever they could avoid being booed off stage. Then they, yeah, I think they were kind of getting nowhere, but then a friend of theirs was making a film and they contributed the music to the film. Oh, okay. And that was the, what was it called? The De-Evolution of Man, which uh, included the um, Secret Agent Man and Jocko Homo, like a 10-minute film, which uh, made it onto the film festival circuit. It did quite well, didn't it? Yeah yeah, 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 that's right. And as a result of that, they were able to kind of get the word out to a few people here and there, including Neil Young or Neil Young's management. So anyway... They, um, they recorded their first single in 1976, which came out in 1977, Mongoloid. And how, how do we feel about the Mongoloid song? Different times. <laughs> I think it's a great song, but uh, yeah, you probably wouldn't be able to do it now. Yeah, it was. It's one of my favourite songs of the uh, of the early years. I was uh, going to ask you guys: Did Devo strike you as being more a theatrical band? Because a lot of the bands that we've been discussing on this podcast, a lot of them had this uh, lightning strike moment of maybe seeing the Sex Pistols or something, and they all wanted to do that. Mm. So, but Devo was before that, and it, it seems to me like you know that they wanted to perform almost like performance art. Mm, absolutely, yeah. I, th- um, I think the difference is that they grew up in America for a start. So most of the bands we talk about in a post-punk context are English. So they were in a small city, isolated from a lot of else was what else was going on. But they were big fans of Roxy Music and Bowie mm, again, mm. and Captain Beefheart. Yeah. So there's a, certainly an element of production. Uh, stage craft and, and looking like something and having an image, which mm. the punks tended to reject, yeah. that part of the Bowie equation. But, but Devo took that on. I mean, I was going to say Devo to me struck me more as a, an idea and a concept mm. than the music. The music is almost secondary <laughs> to the whole evolution theory and the look of them and, you know, they're very kind of rigid even now with what how they present themselves. Yeah, the music yeah. is an afterthought in some ways. Yeah. Well, they were certainly as interested in making films as they were. That's in, right. And they in, made in a lot of their songs. own videos uh, all the way through their career. Yeah. So Jerry Casali directed most, if not all, of Devo's videos. Mm. They were very much in control of their presentation. I mean, they became a legally incorporated entity in 1977. Mm. And that showed how much control they wanted to have over their environment and how sort of serious they were in a kind of a business slash artistic kind of way that they were very focused. Mm. But they created these characters very early on as well, like this yeah. whole theory of de-evolution and the characters behind it was part of it from the beginning. And mm. we were talking about, well, that film, if you get a chance to see yeah, that the, short yeah, film. Yeah, the, the truth about de-evolution, it was yeah, called, actually. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the look of them is very much established there. The earliest clip I've seen of them is that satisfaction on Saturday Night Live 78 and they look the part in that like they've been doing it for a long time. It's not like something that just happened when they start to get successful like we need to no, no, that's create right. an image. So I think they must have looked like that and had that whole the plastic baby boogie boy yeah, yeah, thing, yeah. face, you know, all that stuff. I was, only just recently found out that it's pronounced boogie boy. Yeah, I yeah. always thought it was. It's got a J in it, so I just B double O J I E. Yeah, I but it's, like I think there was something yeah. with the letter set that they ran out of letters and <laughs> had to make it boogie. Uh, <laughs> Maybe. Boogie yeah. Boy, yeah. Just to explain, a recurring character in um, Devo videos is a kind of a man baby. A man baby, yeah. Uh, which is a man. Uh, I think it's Mark Mothersbaugh with a baby mask on, and it's quite an unsettling. Mm. Um, <laughs> image. Yeah. yeah, so he does feature and he's known as Boogie Boy mm. and uh, he featured in their stage show as well. So 
Yeah, he was a motif of the band for... Mm. Just getting back to you talking about them wanting to retain control of the band, the image and everything. I heard Mark Mothersbaugh saying about um, it must have been around the time they were dissatisfaction, but they were recording... They went into the record company and the record company were like, uh, we're going to spend $5,000 and put cardboard cutouts of you guys all over record shops everywhere. And the, basically Diva said, well, why do you want to do that for? And they, were, they were like, well, it's good for promotion. And Mark Mothersbaugh said, well, can we have that $5,000 and make a video? <laughs> 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 and the, the, the record company people, this was probably before MTV, so it was like, they didn't yeah, know yeah. why they would want to do that. Yeah. But it was just interesting that they said, these people don't understand us. We understand yeah. this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, give yeah. us the money and we'll, we'll make something that's, that's amazing. Well, maybe we should talk about how they got their first record deal because nobody did understand them. And they probably would never have gotten anywhere but for being championed by um, David Bowie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it was David Bowie and Iggy Pop got hold of one of their demo tapes from a friend of a, another friend who was in a band and gave them a, gave them a few tapes and they basically, um, well, David Bowie thought they were the future mm. and uh, went so far as to go on stage with them, I think, in 77 and say, you know, this band is the future and I'll be producing their album, which is a pretty big start yeah. for any band. <laughs> and uh, obviously, given that they were big glam fans, they would have been pretty impressed with that. And Eno came on board being from Roxy Music as well. So it's yeah, kind of a crazy start. Yeah, I think Bowie had a, um, a bit of a, a conflict in his schedule. He so was filming something at the time. Yeah, uh, just, just a gigolo, I think it was. I believe was. you're right. So he kind of handed it over to Brian Eno. But they still didn't have a record deal. No, no, and I think Eno paid for everything. Mm. And it was recorded at a Connie Plank studio in Germany, so they had to fly to Germany yeah. and do all that over there for nothing. He paid for everything on the you know, basis that they would definitely get a deal. And Mark Mothersborough is actually, uh, he was a big Roxy Music fan. He was a particularly a big Brian Eno fan. Yeah. It was, yeah. A, it was a Roxy Music song called Editions of You that he heard. It was off the first album. And he heard the keyboard sound on that, and he was just amazed at what it sounded like. <laughs> He didn't know who the keyboard player was at that point, but he really wanted to know how to replicate that sound on keyboards. And yeah, it was just a coincidence that, you know, less than a year or so later, that keyboard player is producing the, the first yeah, album. Yeah, yeah, that's right. In Cologne. What's the consensus about that album, which is called Ah... Uh, what's it called? <laughs> are We Not Men, no We question, Are Devo. Are We Not Men, Answer, <laughs> We Are Devo. <laughs> Well, it's probably my favourite and it's probably most Devo fans' favourite album, unless you're a, um, a fan of the Whippet era. But my, my question was going to be to you, if you'd heard those original demos, like how much do you think Eno added to that album? Because the, one, the tracks I heard that, that he subsequently recorded sounds pretty much they're ready to go. I don't think he changed anything. They're all, the well, versions uh, are the, done. There already. is the story that Eno and David Bowie had sung harmonies on the album and um, the Devo boys got rid of them quick smart. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, I think probably Brian Eno tried to change it, but the guys must have liked the way the demo sounded and they just yeah. probably just wanted a cleaner, crisper version but of it. But who those. argues with Brian Eno, who's producing your first mm, album? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's right. amazing in itself. And yeah. this is, well, it was released in July 78, so presumably it was recorded late 77, early 78. Yeah. And they were nobodies. Yeah. Weird nobodies. Mark Mothersbaugh, apparently in recent years, has found the master tapes for the album. And there are channels which say Brian's extra synths. <laughs> <laughs> 
and David's vocals, and he says, "I remember turning that stuff off when we were doing our final mixes." <laughs> and <laughs> what sort of arrogant young people go? <laughs> David Bowie's singing on our demos. Well, yeah, let's give we it. We don't want that. <laughs> what does he know? Apparently, there are some David Bowie backing vocals on the album, but I couldn't pick them out. No, I couldn't pick them either. Listening to yeah. it, but but yeah, they did say that they were totally paranoid about people interfering with their stuff because they were so they felt that they knew exactly what they were doing. Mm. And my feeling about that first album is that if you hear the Mongoloid single and the Satisfaction single, both of which were re-recorded for the album, I probably prefer the original singles because they have a, a certain rawness. And Eno cleaned them up, but he wasn't allowed to add the things that would have made them stand out from the original singles. Yeah. So it was a bit of a lose-lose situation in a way. If you have a chance to contrast and compare the demos of those two songs as well. It's interesting to hear them. Are we talking Satisfaction? And Mongoloid, yeah. Mongoloid. But, yeah, look, I think it's a great album. Uncontrollable Urge is a great track. Yeah. Um, gut Feeling. Nice riff, really yeah. nice riff. Yeah. Sloppy is great. I mean, I remember the Tell first time. about t- Sloppy. You're not sure about Sloppy? Not sure about First time I heard that album, I, I just didn't know what was going on, but I knew that I liked it. Mm. It was yeah, so yeah, different yeah. to anything else that, that I ha- had been listening to at the time. Do you guys mind if I deconstruct the Satisfaction beat? Not would, at all. I still can't quite yeah, figure no, out I what would, they're doing. I would love well, someone to deconstruct it. The thing is, it's not that complicated and it's actually still just a 4-4 beat. What makes it sound so robotic is basically there's a snare on the 1, a tom on the 2, a ride on the 3 and a kick on the 4. And there's a bit of an open hi-hat before the kick. The drummer just goes round and round that pattern. And that's what gives it that robotic but are the other guys coming in at different time, time signatures or different points? Because um, they all seem to be playing different songs. Yeah, <laughs> but, but it is like a bit of machinery, isn't it? It's, mm. the, the beat is almost like some machinery in a factory. Oh, it's and completely unique. And, I mean, I hate the Rolling Stones with a passion. <laughs> no one hates the Rolling oh, Stones more than me. But that song is a great song in the hands it's of Devo. Even Mark Mothersbaugh said that lyrically it's a great song, and I agree with that. Oh, yeah, the, the lyrics lyric, are, the lyrics are very amazing. clever. But even the riff, the, the, the signature riff for the song, they don't use it. Which is well, just why like, would you use the killer riff from the song? From, in your, in from your a song that everybody knows. That's that's <laughs> my point with these guys. Yeah. They were determined to be different, and, the, yeah. and, and the, that whole image was laid in stone from the very early days that mm. they were going to do things their own way. Arguably, the most famous riff in rock history, <laughs> apart from maybe "Smoke on the Water." It's right up there, isn't it? And yet they don't. They do. They do use a bit of it on the Saturday Night Live version, right? Which right. I urge all of you to, yeah. to watch because it's 1978. Saturday Night Live is a pretty mainstream big time TV show and Devo are on there and it just is so bizarre. For some, yeah, for some bizarre so reason. So strange. It looks strange Michaels. now, let alone in yeah. 1978 in America. Yeah, but when you when you look at the list of musical guests on Saturday Night Live in the 70s, it kind of reads like a, you know, like a typical list of top 40 artists of the time, mm. usually coupled with people from a you know, previous era like Paul Simon, you know, just very middle of the road. And before Devo appeared, I think I think Patty Smith was on once. Mm. Um, the Sex Pistols was due to play in 
December in 77, but um, they cancelled and was replaced by Elvis Costello. But when Devo appeared, it must have really shaken up middle America. I have no idea what Lorne Michaels was thinking booking them. Well, apparently Neil Young's management was involved because Devo had some connection with Neil Young's management. And I think Neil Young's management said to the Saturday Night Live people, if you want Neil Young on the show, you're going to have to take Devo as part of the package. Something along those lines anyway. Funnily enough, um, a week before Devo did Satisfaction on Saturday Night Live, the Rolling Stones were on Saturday Night Live. (laughs) (laughs) They played Mongoloid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And the next month, Van Morrison and Grateful Dead were on Saturday Night Live. It's more like what I'd expect. This is the environment into which this band with their robotic movements, yellow boiler suits with the word Devo on it and this absolutely extraordinary song Mm. introduced by a groovy-looking Fred Willard. Ladies and gentlemen, Devo. Who was... Actor who has played many roles over the years, including Phil's dad in Modern Family. He, he was in all of the Christopher Guest movies from Spinal Tap onwards. Yeah, A, a Mighty Wind and yeah, all those yeah. kind of films, yeah. Before we leave Satisfaction, I just want to say that when they first started playing Satisfaction, it was a lot slower. And they said that they started off at Akron speed. This is how they, <laughs> they described it. But uh, they said that then they went to New York and saw the Ramones and the Damned and it put a fire under us. Right, that's um, interesting. And I think that's great because uh, I know a lot of these art bands kind of reject movements and trends and things. They kind of distance themselves from it. But obviously punk at the time had had an effect on them. So um, yeah, even yeah. though they were always weird and quirky and robotic and whatever, I think the speed of the songs, you know, they, yeah. they were kind of matching what was happening around them, which was... Well, they probably saw an opportunity to be part of something that, other than just on their own as they had been for mm. such a long time, not particularly yeah. getting anywhere. Yeah. Um, the, the album, as we said, released in July 78, it actually did okay, all in all. Yeah, yeah. Number 12 in the UK, not, not much in the US. Actually charted higher in Australia than it did in America, mm. which, which is weird. I don't really remember it at the time. Well, the song Satisfaction was played on the Australian music show Countdown mm. and the producer of Countdown said that he had sleepless nights about them putting that, that clip on during a family friendly hour because it does feature, I think, Boogie Boy sticking a fork into a toaster. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So I would have seen that clip as a 13, 14-year-old. And, you know, after I was released from hospital for the (laughs) after an unfortunate (laughs) electrocution incident, I was was right as rain. So... But I think that would have helped propel the album into, you know, Mm. the kind of middle reaches of the charts in Australia anyway. Funnily enough, in terms of punk and the influence of punk on Devo, they're quite dismissive of punk in terms of the uniform of punk and the fact that they didn't find it musically very interesting and all that kind of thing. And I think we do touch on this occasionally during these podcasts, but the age of the band Mm. members at the time of punk happening is crucial in terms of all this. absolutely. And when Devo's first album came out, Mark Mothersbaugh, I think, was 28 Mm. and Jerry Casale was 30. So it's no surprise that punk from two years earlier hadn't had much of an impact on them. They kind of lived through the Beatles era. Mm. So that was their germinating kind of Mm. period. And, you know, Eno's Keyboards, as you say, and Diamond Dogs by Bowie and so on. That was Jerry Casale's big moment, wasn't it? He saw the Diamond Dogs tour and realised he wanted to... Yeah, yeah. He saw, like, music and theatre... Yeah, yeah, that's right. people's minds and, uh, and that, that's that was right, yeah. uh, what influenced uh, Devo. And, you know, they would have been big fans of Aladdin Sane 
Mm. For instance, which was produced by... Well, I was going to say, before <laughs> you get on to the next album, yeah. Ken Scott produced Judy Now for the Future and he did three Bowie albums. Yeah. So uh, That's Ziggy right. started. Including Aladdin Sane. Yeah, Aladdin Sane and, and Hunky Dory. So. Can I just say, just before you get on to the, to the second album, sure. did you guys know that uh, Johnny Rotten was almost the lead singer of Devo? He was, he was un- yeah. Well, I don't think he was almost. There was a he? meeting, wasn't there? Yeah, after the Sex Pistols broke up, uh, Richard Branson asked Johnny Rotten to come down to Jamaica with him and this uh, guy called Ken Berry. And I think uh, Richard Branson had this plan to get Johnny in as lead singer of Devo because uh, there were a lot of journalists down there as well. I think he was hoping to get a big story out of it. But the Devo boys heard the plan and turned him down pretty quick smart. I mean, the fact that they didn't want <laughs> Eno and Bowie on their album <laughs> <laughs> kind of suggests that they didn't want any outsiders in there at all. You know, yeah, that yeah. They were already a, a closed shop. So... Um, but, yeah, I just thought that was amazing. It would have been an odd Devo, I think, uh, if Johnny Rod never became... I can't a, imagine him wanting to do that either, to be honest. No, he probably no. wasn't consulted. Maybe it was, an idea. It yeah, was just yeah. Richard Branson um, hoping for a headline or something, mm. wanting to sell records. But, yes, duty now for the future. Yeah, so fella called Ken Scott comes in to produce it. Came out in July 79, roughly 12 months after the first album. Mm-hmm. And it didn't get a great reception. It's not kind of considered to be the classic Devo album but by any means. There's um, a lot of tracks on there that they had been kicking around for a while. They, mm. You know, the, the usual second album syndrome. I think it's got some great songs on it. it mm. It's a bit harder. It takes a little bit of getting used to and it's a little bit more deliberately odd harmonies and, you know, a little bit stranger mm. in some ways. So there's a good four or five killer tracks on there. Cover of Secret Agent Man's great. I like uh, Clock Out and Wiggly World. Smart Patrol. Yeah. Can't go past that. There's a few interesting things like um, Timing X and stuff like that, Mm. showing a lot more synthy. Swelling, itching brain. Yep, that's great. Um, uh, Moving towards that more electronic sound, leaving the guitars behind. Not that they were ever a guitar band, but... With Swelling, Itching Brain, that to me sounds like an Ultravox song until Mm. he starts singing. Yeah, then yeah, when yeah, he starts singing, yeah. there's that sort of yelping XTC style singing, you know, that because uh, mm. Ultravox and a lot of the synth bands are quite serious in, mm. in the way they delivered. Uh, well, it does it does sound like Are We Not Man Part Two. The to not me. as good songs. Yeah, 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 the ones we didn't use for the first time. Yeah, yeah, but the songs we mentioned with the electronics coming in, it's like okay, well, this is what makes it an interesting album because you are hearing the link between the first album and subsequent albums. Mm. And the band themselves hated the production. Jerry said, the sound of that album disgusted me. <laughs> well, I also heard him say that Ken Scott deballed us. Mm. Yeah, I read that too. Yeah, as in, uh, I mean, this, this is a guy that produced three Bowie albums. Yeah, Ken, Ken Scott's done some good stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the sound of it's fine. I think the songs just aren't up to scratch, to be honest. There's a lot of noodling and a lot of deliberately kind of just like, we're going to be odd here. And yeah. You know, yeah. there's not a lot of point to it sometimes. I don't think they should be blaming Ken Scott. No, I think it's a bit, no. a bit rough on Ken. Have you read about Ken Scott? I'm probably getting off post-punk a bit here, but if you ever read about Ken Scott's history, it's amazing. He was 16 and sent out letters saying, I want to work in, in audio. 
and he got a job at 16 being a button pusher for a hard day's night. Like the Beatles was his first <laughs> his first session, and he did every Beatles album up to uh, the White Album, and then he wow. did a lot of Beatles solo albums. Just an incredible career for someone at 16 who sent out a few letters. Yeah. So, so he was there for a hard day's night. He was there for Devo's second yeah. album. <laughs> second album, that's right. Yeah. And a few Bowie albums too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. It's never straight up and down. The album got some fairly scathing reviews, and uh, my favourite was uh, Rolling Stone magazine, which was they didn't like them. Pretty the slow to come to the uh, new wave mm, party. Yeah. Oh, uh, they like the cars and cheap trick. <laughs> come on, <laughs> that's true. And the tubes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The um, the reviewer Dave Marsh said Devo's funkless chubs, which I think is a great a great phrase in itself. Devo's funkless chubs have very few new ideas. Most of the concepts have been recycled from Frank Zappa, the Yardbirds, and other sixties avant gardists. And the handful of original notions they do try to express are mostly lame or fraudulent. When I finish typing this, I'm taking a hammer to it. <laughs> Good review. <laughs> which is, you know, sharp. It's yeah. a sharp piece of writing, but. Comparing Devo with the Yardbirds, you know, which is the band that uh, uh, Eric Clapton's hmm. band um, and uh, Jimmy Page played in the band as well, um, among other notables. But uh, yeah, when I think of some of the electronic songs in particular, you mm-hmm. know, on that album, you know, the, the Yardbirds don't really, you know, they, they they had a hit with "For Your Love," that's right, uh, written by Graham Ten, 10 CC's Graham Graham Goldman. Yeah, so you think, well, Dave Marsh was a dinosaur, clearly, in 1979, writing this out-of-touch review. So mm. where is he now? He is uh, a committee member for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2018, oh, 2019, <laughs> in Cleveland, you know, so not that far from Akron. And aren't Devo up for an award? Or not they? if he has anything to do with it. <laughs> yeah, no, haven't they been yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're on the short list for the Funkless Chubs. Of the year. <laughs> Very short list. I think the joke had started to wear thin for a lot of journalists with Devo. Like there was that initial excitement about them, the hype about them, and then it was just like, well, what is all this anyway? Yeah. These weird masks and this theory of de-evolution and kind of tuneless songs. You know, I think that they kind of just got over them a little bit because mm. they're pretty rigid in this kind of thing. It's it's pursued pretty hard, their whole philosophy. And yeah. it, you know, it's kind of a certain type of humour. It's more about making trouble. Mm. And, and stirring things up, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and because it is hard to tell whether they're serious or not, mm. it's it's like, okay, so, you know, for the serious student types, is there enough kind of meat on the philosophical bone? Mm. Or, or is it all just theory and, and kind of taking the piss? I can't remember whether they had the Energy Domes on the second album or whether that was a little bit later on, but, you know, like the kind of flower pots and in inverted commas. So, you know, like in terms of looking really comic, mm. yeah, it was easy to see them as a novelty act and, mm. as you say, once that joke isn't funny, Anymore, well, and they wouldn't really go. play the game in the way that, that people wanted them to. Eat. But I think it's it's fair to say the second album wasn't as good as the first. Let's let's mm. let's go there, and it certainly didn't perform as well. I read that it was eventually heralded as one of the first pop rock or AOR releases of a major record label to rely heavily on synthesizers. Mm. Does that ring true to you guys? Mm. Yeah, I, it, it has a new wave feel to it. I mean, what what label were they on by this point? It, uh, Virgin. They were on Warner's, right? Mm. And, and Warner's so I think, in, in I the think states, signed, which is the same. I think I think it was Virgin in the UK, probably. Yeah, they'd yeah. signed, I think, a seven album deal. Right. Which was a little bit unfortunate because after Duty Now for the Future came out and flopped, Warners didn't like it and they said, we're going to dump you mm. unless the next album 
is great. So the pressure was really so, on So, Patrick, was the next album great? For a band that would determine not to have hits and not to play the game, moving to LA is about as the opposite of that as you can get to record mm. the third album. So they really embraced the music industry and did that cliche thing of we're going to, you know, attack it from the inside, which you know, I find, you know, a little bit misleading when people who say they don't want success then get success to prove that they don't want success. <laughs> because the, the third album was huge. And it's a great album, Freedom of Choice. Uh, released May 1980, self-produced, I think it was. Produced with a fellow called Robert Margulef. Mm. They had a meeting with this guy, you know, are we going to work with him or not? And at the time, they were making a film with Neil Young. Human Highway. Yeah, and they were wearing black jumpsuits and helmets with a tube that went up their nose. <laughs> and they were, you know, like mid-scene. Yeah. And they had this meeting and they didn't want to kind of have to take all these things off and put them back on again. So they met up with the prospective producer with tubes up their noses from helmets and wearing these black jumpsuits. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was about as Devo a moment as you could get. <laughs> as you could get. Yeah, so um, Bob Margulef came on board and I think did an absolutely fantastic job. This is an album which came out 10 months after Duty Now for the Future. And it's just, it's, it's, I think, such a huge step forward. Well, it's got hit singles on it. It's and got just really good songs. Yeah, well, it, it's good songs and it's probably the album most non-partisan Devo fans know. Uh, you've yeah. got, obviously, Girl You Want, yeah. Rip It, the big hit, was a top ten hit, I think. I was going to say this to you guys that it was a big hit in America, mm. but I'm surprised it only reached number 77 in Australia. Is that right? I, re- I seem to remember it being yeah, really yeah, like, big like, here and seeing that video a lot. It was the video was on all the time. Yeah. I was on the radio all the time. Yeah, I was just surprised it, it did so little here. That would surprise me if that's true. Well, apparently, but I mean, the album got to number five. Mm, maybe so. people just bought the album. Yeah. I mean, it's packed yeah. full of hits. Freedom of choice, the song itself. Gates of Steel. I really like Planet Earth. Mm. Yeah. That's a yeah. great song. Uh, it's not but the Duran Duran well, song. Well, I think maybe the single itself wasn't released until quite late on in the album cycle because yeah. Freedom of Choice was a single, Girl You Want was a single. It might have been around about the time that they toured Australia in 1981 and they had an EP, early 82. So Early yeah. 82, I think it was. So maybe the live EP that they had kind of usurped the Whip It single. Okay. In terms of the production of Freedom of Choice, Bob Margulef had done the synth programming on Stevie Wonder albums in the 70s, so he was really on top of the programming and the sonic side of things. Mm. And you can really hear just how clean and clear and sharp the sound is. And he deliberately made the production as dry as possible and as in-your-face as possible, and so every note counts Mm. on that album. And it's, for me, by far my favourite Devo album and it's an incredible synthesis so to speak of technology and actual instruments and Alan Well they Mar- play most of it don't they? Yeah, it's not yeah. sequenced or programmed. Yeah no that's right and Jerry Casale had decided to stop playing bass guitar and, and he was physically playing the bass lines yeah, uh- on, on synthesizer. 
And so it does have a kind of an organic quality to it, even though it is quite electronic. And Alan Meyer's drumming is pretty amazing. He sounds like a computer in a good way. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think it's a fantastic album. And I've, I've loved going back and listening to it again because I hadn't listened to it for a while. And they'd thought of it as the White Robot James Brown album, which is a bit of a stretch, but you can I've hear I've got a quote here saying that we thought Freedom of Choice was our funk album. As <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> close as they would get to it, mm, probably. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to bring something in out of left field in that I remember Devo being really popular amongst people who hated punk and new wave, yes. amongst my circle of acquaintances and, and you know, larger groups of people even at school because this came out in 1980, so I was at school. So myself and Curtis, you know, my group of people that listened to new wave loved it, of course, and we already knew Devo. But there was a lot of surfers and skaters that hated, and we grew up in Brisbane, that hated all this sort of music, but they loved Devo. Yeah, I don't know why. It's a really weird one that I could never quite understand. It was the only thing we could agree on, like, as they were punching our heads in, you know, we could <laughs> have a moment where we would go, oh, but what about freedom of choice or, you know, mongoloid? Yeah, yeah. And then stop beating you. Anyway, I've got to keep doing this. Yeah, I understand. So, um, and, the, and the beatings would continue, but it was just an amazing point that we could both agree on. It was the only thing we probably agreed on. Mm. Well, the Freedom of Choice video, for instance, had the skateboarding mm. in it. So they, they must have had some connection in that wider community back then that I wasn't aware of. That mm. Because surfers were no notoriously conservative in their music taste and they liked reggae and Led Zeppelin and all of the bands that your older brother, you know, would like mm. or whatever. And they certainly mm. didn't like any of the new wave bands. They hated them with a passion, except yeah. the Devo, strangely. And when you think of them wearing these these ridiculous kind of hats, which mm. apparently... Um, well, that wasn't the only ridiculous thing they wore. No, no, that's right. I mean, you right. look at the video for, for Whippet, you know, they're yeah. wearing these little shorts and playing inside this fenced-off area. It's all very strange. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> But uh, apparently the red energy domes, the hats, were modelled on ceiling fittings from the 1930s. Oh, well, so, of course. as distinct from flower pots, and Jerry was quite insistent on the fact that there's never been a flower pot designed that looks like the energy dome. So, so he, he doesn't like that description? Apparently not. Apparently he thinks it makes Devo seem comical in some way. That's right, yeah. How could that be? So <laughs> they're not clowns, for God's sake. <laughs> Fascist clowns. Well, they, they, um, Jerry has gone on record as saying everyone in the band hated clowns. Can I ask you something, Patrick? What do you think Freedom of Choice is about? Well, I think the it's... The song it's, or just in general? It's the ambiguity of the, uh, the modern world, the Western world. You know, do we want freedom of choice or do we want freedom from choice? Yeah. You know, I think it's a kind of a contrast between a certain hippie optimism maybe that the band had, but also that, that you know, they'd very much signed on for the de-evolution, you know, like we're doomed idea. And there's a line in Gates of Steel on Freedom of Choice, half a goon and half a god. You know, I think that kind of sums up their attitude to to humans that, you know, we could be great, but we're morons. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's how I'd see freedom of choice. I was just wondering whether they, every time I read the lyrics, I wonder which side of the fence they're falling on. Yeah, that's right. I think a lot of their lyrics and their outlook come from being alienated and ostracised mm. as youths in, in their hometown. Certainly there's a, st a streak of misogyny in a lot of the songs and the lyrics, certainly the early ones, certainly kind of bitterness towards women and, and some weird sex stuff mm. as well. There is, isn't there? Yeah, yeah and I kept, keep thinking, well, obviously didn't get a lot of chicks back then. <laughs> no, and so no, they kind of no. took it out in the lyrics and, you know, maybe that's how they, they set out their stall, you know, why they... Well, they could have gone and got a job in a bank. 
That's John right. Or been a f- up that's right. Yeah. One of the two. Yeah, <laughs> Do yeah. what everyone else did. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Become a teller. Their choice. Anyway, now Devo were big. Bonafide stars. Mm. Hits on MTV. Mm. Tours. Well, they came to Australia in, what did we say, early 82? Mm. I, yeah, so I, right. I didn't go and see them. You didn't or did? No, I didn't. Well, no, I didn't no. as well. So I thought they'd sold out. <laughs> You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> That's what I thought you were going to say. Once again, I did that stupid thing of going, you know, <laughs> this, I'm too cool for this and I'm not going to go anymore. I would have seen them three months earlier, but yeah. not now. Not yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Not now that they're on the well, top Well, not now that people at school who didn't like good music liked them. Yeah. So yeah. I you know, didn't go. Well, Devo held a particular position in the Australian music scene at that time. They were probably bigger in Australia than they were in mm. any other country on earth. Mm. In August 81, they released the new Traditionalists album, but they also released Devo Live EP, and it got to number one in the Australian singles charts for three weeks. It was number one for two weeks, and then Jesse's Girl by Rick Springfield was number one. <laughs> of course, and, and fair then, enough. Too. And then it went back to number one. So you know they were they were usurped Jesse's Girl. Yeah, well, were, I, I'm not yeah, happy about that. They were absolutely, yeah, they were <laughs> absolutely huge. Ian Molly Meldrum, the host of Countdown, went to the states, I think, to interview them for their forthcoming tour. And there's some great footage on YouTube with uh, Molly wearing the Energy Dome as he That's interviews right. them. And he did say at one point, you know, do you have a message for your fans down under? And I think it was Mark Mothersbaugh said, Australian spuds, choose your mutants carefully. <laughs> it's a good message. You know, I just think that is such a <laughs> such a <laughs> such a fantastically confusing. Yeah. idea and this was going out to the most mainstream you know australian tv show there was yeah. you know 6 p.m sunday and then it would have been okay and now rod stewart's new single so yeah. it was really something so uh, on countdown they threw they threw a few curveballs every now and then yeah so yeah absolutely kind of cool. but uh and i did buy the new traditionalist album if that's if we're heading in that direction the fourth album now yes, yes. the, the uh, fourth album and um I quite liked it. What did what did you? Was the first think? single through being cool? Well, that single was a reaction to the success they'd had mm. on uh, Freedom of Choice. It was released almost a year after again. What do you yep. say? August yep. eighty-one. Yep. Um, if you listen to the the lyrics of it. Eliminate the ninnies and the twits. Okay, so they obviously were like, we don't, we're not associating ourselves with those people. And that goes back to what I was saying before. They saw themselves as outsiders, always, yeah. and having this huge success that they obviously had wanted, maybe uh, hardened their resolve to yeah. uh, to kind of not not be those people. But it's a very commercial album, jerking back and forth, going under. Mm. Beautiful World, yeah, great song. Uh, and Working in a Coal Mine was a bonus track. A bonus single. Yeah, I think it was a bonus single. They'd recorded a song for a movie soundtrack, Heavy Metal, I think was, was mm. the name of the film. I don't, don't really know anything about the film. But, uh, yeah, and I think they maybe wanted to add it to the album, but there were issues with copyright for it because it was a cover version. Well, it, but it's an old song. It goes back. It's, it's on those original hardcore demos. <laughs> And it sounds basically the same yeah, as this. Yeah, it does. It so does. they've been playing it that long and they'd obviously held that one up their sleeves until, yeah, until yeah. the fourth album. Well, I've been working in a coal mine, going down, down, working in a coal mine, oh, about to slip down. It was a big hit uh, yeah. here in Australia. 
But if you ever see them perform that on Countdown... With the mining with, helmets with the, on? Yes, they're fashioned on the Countdown stage, this uh, coal mine. And like, a, are, like a scaffold kind yeah, of... Yeah, scaffold. But, mm. but you can see three members of Devo underneath doing the digging and with, mm. with the picks and whatever. But uh, Jerry and Mark are on the top singing the song, like they're, they're above ground. Yeah. And Mark Mothersbaugh is doing this most perverse pelvic thrusting I've ever seen. <laughs> and and I, I don't know why he's doing that. But Well, uh, I have a theory yeah. about ah. that. I was told by the sister of a good friend of mine, took me aside one day or took us aside one day and said, you know what working in a coal mine's about? And we said no. And she said it's about anal sex. Ah. Working in a coal well. mine going down, down. Okay. So maybe that's maybe where, that's why he was. That's doing why what he was doing. doing. I'm not saying she's right, but it would make sense. Well, quickly changing the subject, the lack of success in the UK for Devo, I've always found kind of interesting. I mean, their, their first album, as you said, got to number twelve. I think mm, you said. I did say. But that. Uh, yeah, I mean, Freedom of Choice got to number forty-seven, and New Traditionalists got to number fifty. They suffered a bit with new traditionalists because Dare, the Human League album, came out in October. So, you know, within a few weeks, Depeche Mode's first album, Orchestra News in the Darks, Architecture and Morality, Ultravox's Rage in Eden, all of those albums Everything came, out. came out within two months of Devo's album. So instead of being what, what I would say, being really ahead of the pack for the most part in terms of uh, with Freedom of Choice... By the time of New Traditionalists, they ditched the drumming for the most part. There was a lot of drum machines, if not all drum machines. It certainly sounds drum machine-y. Mm. And it just, they're starting to sound a little bit generic to me, even though I really like a lot of the songs on the album. think that they were, to use your favourite phrase, crueled by the press, the music press there? The press never really liked them. Mm. Well, did they didn't they? get them. They couldn't kind of get a handle on them. Yeah, yeah. I did buy that uh, album when it came out and I was particularly struck by the insert that came with the 12-inch record, which was merchandise, band merchandise. Mm. And I think they had similar merchandise inserts in previous albums, but you could buy your own energy dome and they described it as a special red vacuum form plastic hat designed and worn by Devo in concert on TV and in airports um, <laughs> and you could get the yellow suit you could get the black plastic wigs the kind of John F. Kennedy style or Ronald Reagan style wigs that they wore on the cover or you could get a Devo hat pin and they described that as being for fair weather spuds or those on a student budget um, but the yellow suit cost $21.50, including postage and handling, in Australia. It's not bad. Imagine getting around Melbourne, as I was, or Brisbane, as you guys were, in a yellow kind of boiler suit, boiler with, suit with, yeah. with Devo on it. You didn't get one? Weren't no, tempted? no. I, I, You're on a student budget. I, yeah, I certainly didn't have $21.50 after I'd forked out $14.99 or whatever for the... For the album. For the vinyl. Yeah, that's right. Where do we think it sits in the pantheon of... The first five Devo albums. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I, I liked it. Um, I like it more now. Yeah. I didn't yeah. like it then and now I've listened to it again. Going Under, there's some great songs on there. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. I don't know why I dismissed it apart from, you know, my short-sighted idiocy <laughs> about it not being cool anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, despite them telling me them telling me they were through being cool. They were through cool, being cool, I yeah. didn't believe it. It wasn't about being cool anymore. Yeah. Mm. Damn, they, they threw me there. I really like uh, Beautiful World. It's a beautiful But I always thought that the most infectious part of the song, the most pop song chord progression, 
is right at the very end when it's fading out. You feel that that was underutilised. In the end, it's just the one chord, and right at the very end, they... Yeah, they, it's a beautiful, beautiful world. Yeah, they bring in a second chord, and it's the most catchy as part of the song. Mm. They should have put it in every chorus. But... I think there are a few songs which are slightly throwaway on the album and it kind of wears a little bit thin at times for me but yeah the songs you've mentioned through being cool going under jerking back and forth uh, beautiful world there's some fantastic some songs. great songs a worthy successor to freedom of choice i'd say so. that which brings us neatly to well they're a bit bit tardy on releasing this one november 82 so they had a bit of a rest there over 12 months hmm. well they did a uh, collaboration with jermaine jackson let's not forget that oh you dug that up on youtube didn't you this was before his brother released thriller and jermaine jackson is jermaine jackson is one of, of the uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was a part of a, a new wave band from gary indiana <laughs> Call the Jacksons. No, they call the Jackson Five. Sorry, that's right. Um, Michael Jackson was um, busy collaborating with Quincy Jones, and Jermaine Jackson said, "No, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to work <laughs> with Devo." And he did a song called "Let Me Tickle Your Fancy." It's a cracker. Yeah, it's cracker. Mm, it's cracker. Snappy. I like it. You must, you must pop that in. I don't know whether Devo were going to continue doing this line. Like, I don't think they collaborated with many people back then. Neil Young being one. Being of one. Them. That was mm. a weird one, yeah. They recorded a song in the film Human Highway, I think, which was directed by Neil Young and Dean Stockwell, the actor, mm. who was in Blue Velvet and... Paris, Texas. Paris, Texas and so on, yeah. And uh, the film featured... Devo as nuclear garbage persons, mm. and that came out in '82 as well, around about the time I think perhaps that Ono, oh it's Devo, the fifth album. Out. Yeah, even though the film had a, like a fairly lengthy gestation period, mm. that was out in '82. They were collaborating with Jermaine Jackson. Mm. They had a new album in the can, but was the album any good? Yeah, look, I think it has its moments. To be honest, um, it was produced by Roy Thomas Baker. Of Cars and Queen, Cars and Queen I think he did just about every Queen album. Uh, he's got an incredible pedigree if you ever want to look him up, him up as well. A producer of some note, and obviously taking him on board, they wanted to expand the sound and maybe they wanted to be turned into the Cars. They mentioned how the record company wanted to do that, but the production was certainly pretty high gloss. Mm. Songs like Peekaboo. I like That's Good. Yeah. Uh, and the song Big Mess is also great. Yep. Um, the story about the lyrics behind that, I don't know if you read anything about that. I don't usually delve into their lyrics because they make very little sense. But apparently they had, a, <laughs> they had friends who worked at a radio station who used to check fan mail for this particular DJ that would get these letters. And so some of these guys forwarded these letters to Devo and said, you've got to read some of these. And so one of them was from... A very strange fellow ranting and raving about his own radio show and, and somehow connected to this DJ's show. And so they basically took that and made a song out of it. Um, so they wrote a song based on being that person who wrote the letter to the DJ who's possibly mentally ill. Wow. <laughs> so I, um, yeah. It's a great song. That's a great, great lyric as well. I've got nothing to add about that album because I didn't listen to it. Wow, you protested. <laughs> no, no, I just uh, I, I stopped after New Tradition. I found there was more on it that I liked than what I remembered. I did buy Peekaboo, the single, because I thought that was fantastic, but I forgot it was on this album, to be honest. Mm. Um, by 1982, the end of 82, I was 
and was moving on. And I think they were well and truly, Devo, back in the pack in terms of their sound. And the three songs you mentioned on that album are my three favourite songs yeah. on the album. But by 1982, every second band had that synthesised sound, that drum machine Big sound. Big drum machine sound, yeah. No mm. guitars or very few guitars. But the only thing that did change every album was the look, I was going to say. They kind of refined their look every album. It was similar but slightly different. And whether that was part of the merchandising push. It was or, always mm. uniform. It's always uniform and kind of anonymous. Yeah. And looking, well, which is uniform, but they, they didn't want to look like anybody else, but they didn't want to be picked out either. I, yeah. I could never tell you which one of them is which, <laughs> ever. No, no. I know Mark Mothersbaugh, but yeah, the others are sort of blend in. The um, new traditionalists look was like a... Um, that was the hair wigs, like yeah, the, the hair was like JFK, a JFK wigs. The space mm. kind of um, Star Trekky sort of mm, shirt on, yeah. yeah. It was always a good look. I always liked the look. You never, you never went for it yourself, no? No, I had to remain employed at that point. Uh, <laughs> I guess the work at the pool wouldn't have really called for this. Yeah, you had to wear a swim cap to use the pool. So actually, maybe the plastic hair thing would have been fine. Would have worked fine for you, yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, I know it's Devo 1982, but we kind of feel like that's the end of that's, the road yeah, for that, Devo. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were subsequent albums. Oh, they've continued working. Uh, um, Mark Mothersbaugh's done lots of soundtrack work, TV work. Rugrats. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, he did, uh, he did stuff on that. The Royal Tenon bombs. bombs. Yeah, did a lot of stuff um, in movies. So Mark went on to do a lot of audio stuff and Jerry Casale went on to direct a ton of music videos, including Blow Up the Outside World, Soundgarden. Great track. Foo Fighters, I'll Stick Around. I don't actually know that song. And a couple of uh, clips of Silverchair, oh, so wow. Australian band Silverchair. So those two have sort of made their mark outside Devo. And what have the other two siblings done? Uh, well, one of them has uh, passed away in recent years, as did the drummer Alan Myers. So The other mother's bar? Yeah, Bob One, I think, was uh, Bob Mother's Ball. There was uh, two Bobs in the band. I'm not sure what Bob's up to these days. I have seen an interview with him in the last decade or so and he was looking looking quite well. Well, we should say, I suppose, Devo didn't end in 1982, but for the no, purposes right. of our conversation, yeah. where where do they sit in the new wave, you know, kind of... Pantheon? Yeah, like what, what's their contribution? Why are they, I guess, why are they considered pioneers? in the field for mm. what they what they did and what they were doing prior to that, as we said, prior to punk, prior to everything. Well, as I said in the intro, they were odd and quirky and it seemed to mesh with the new wave movement. Mm. So, um, Well, they certainly so, introduced synths very early on as well. Yeah. They were big on that. Uh, but I think they were at the right place at the right time, I think. I remember when Are We Like Men came out, seeing it and listening to it, I thought this is the, the right album at, at this time. But they weren't part of the CBGB sort no, of scene. No, that's right. Um, not that Ramones television blondie world. No, no. Which we associate with American punk and even post-punk to whatever degree. Well, I think they had very little connection with that world. I mean, uh, Jerry has said, for instance, that he felt that David Byrne ripped off Mark Mothersbaugh in terms of his stage... Nervous, stage geeky, persona. chic. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, so it almost sounded like, you know, there's no love lost between those bands. I don't I mean, think there's any love lost between Devo and anybody. <laughs> they seem to go out of their way to apart be Apart from Neil Young. Uh, apart from Neil Young. But yeah, it's part of their image to be kind of dismissive of everything apart from their own output. Even in even interviews with them these days, they pretty much hate everything. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's part of their shtick. Well, I think the, the musical journey they went on was just extraordinary and it didn't always make sense. But I think within their own broad and crazy definition of the term de-evolution, 
the universe that they created was a fascinating one, an exciting one, a ton of extraordinary songs, some fantastic, unforgettable, terrifying visual aspects to it as well. And, you know, I would put them right up there as one of the most influential bands of the post-punk era and certainly one of my favourites.